Big show ahead. First, a tale of two leaders, the good and the Kamala. Then looking back on the Las Vegas Route 91 Harvest Festival massacre five years later with a man who is not only there, but saved lives. And finally, you know, I've got some final thoughts. Get excited. The show starts now. When catastrophe strikes, whether or otherwise, we count on our leaders to stand up, step up, restore order, and reassure us everything will be okay. Now, despite the fact the liberal media wrote negative headlines about Ron DeSantis before Hurricane Ian was even publicly named, he once again proved them wrong and continues to lead Florida out of the aftermath of one of its worst natural disasters in a decade. He did so with grace, compassion, and strength. He also reminded the yahoos who so much as thought about looting what would happen to them, not if, but when they were caught. The other thing that we're concerned about, particularly in those areas that were really hard hit, is, you know, we want to make sure we're maintaining law and order. Uh, don't even think about looting. Don't even think about taking advantage of people in this vulnerable uh, situation. And so local law enforcement is involved in in, in, in monitoring that, you know, I told Kevin if the state needs to help as well, uh, because you, know, you can have people, you know, bringing boats into some of these islands and trying to ransack people's homes. Um, I can tell you in the state of Florida, uh, you never know what may be lurking behind somebody's home. And I would not want to chance that if I were you, given that we're a Second Amendment state. A law, order and Second Amendment state indeed. You want to take advantage of stores, businesses, and homes in the wake of disaster? Well, in Florida, you F around and you find out. But meanwhile, on the other side of the country, a lesser governor wore a damn sweater while telling his residents not to use their air conditioners during a heat wave to prevent rolling blackouts again. So yes, the true colors of our leaders do come out in the midst of chaos. And speaking of colors, Vice President Kamala Harris wants you to know if you're a color besides white, well, she has your back. It is our um, lowest income communities and our communities of color that are most impacted by these extreme conditions and, and impacted by, by issues that are not of their own making. And, and so women. we, absolutely. And so we have to address this in a way that is about giving resources based on equity, understanding that we, we fight for equality, but we also need to fight for equity, understanding not everyone starts out at the same place. And if we want people to be in an equal place, sometimes we have to take into account those disparities um, and, and do that work. Resources based on racial equity, not equality. Well, that's one way to lead right into the ground. All I can say is, thank goodness, we are experiencing the tail end of Kamala's political career indeed. But up next, his bravery, selflessness, and quick action save lives during and after the Las Vegas Route 91 Harvest Festival massacre. Taylor Winston lived it, survived it, and he is here to recount that tragic night five years ago. That's next. Las Vegas, Nevada, October 1st, 2017. Route 91 festival goers, performers, and vendors thought it was going to be a fun night of music, laughter, beer, and good times. But it became the deadliest shooting in U.S. history. 58 dead in total, and five years later, we still don't know everything that went down that night or the days before it. But my next guest was not only there, but his act of heroism no doubt saved dozens of lives, probably even more. And he joins me now to recount what he saw heard and did. Route 91 survivor and United States Marine Corps veteran Taylor Winston. 
thank you for being with me. You know, I've, I've known you kind of since I moved to Nashville and I knew that you went through this and you experienced it. But boy, what you did that night is on a different level. Looking back five years ago, a little more than five years ago now, a few days later, tell me what you saw that night. Well, um, I would like to start with thanking not only like the first responders, but thousands of people who did courageous things such as I. Um, I just happened to have a good idea and it worked and uh, made headlines, but there were thousands of people you know, acting in good against one bad guy that night. And um, to tell my story a little bit, you know, we were there attending the concert, I was there for work, and then we decided to go catch the tail end of Jason Aldean. Um, he was into a set, a few songs, and then I heard some popping, and I was like, oh, that's odd, that sounds like gunfire. And, you know, being in the military for five years, I've heard a lot of it, and it was very right. distinct, but I didn't think it was anything for the venue, like I didn't feel any danger because no one else was looking around. Um, it happened again shortly after. And at that time, people started looking around again. Um, a lot of people attributed it to thinking it was fireworks or something, but mm -hmm. it's very distinctly gunfire. Um, and then the third time, um, ooh, sneaks up on you. Um, totally understandable. It was just uh, full chaos, um, automatic uh, machine gunfire firing into the crowds like fish in a barrel and uh, people running in every direction, screaming for their lives. But you acted quickly from, from what I've read and from what you told me, you were kind of backed up against a fence at this point. And like you said, you guys were fish in a barrel. I mean, yeah. you were trapped in this area. This is at Mandalay Bay. You're, you're trapped, if anybody's yeah. experienced Vegas. But you're up against a fence. What happened after that and, and what did your instincts tell you to do in that moment? So immediately, um, you know, I ran for my life thinking, this is it, I'm gonna die. Um, I don't know how I didn't get hit. I watched people fall to the left and right of me. Um, just told people to keep their heads down and keep running. There's not much else you can do in that kind of situation. Um, just hope you, you yourself don't get hit. Uh, we made it to the fence line and we started boosting people over. Um, people, were, have you ever seen like the tops of cross mm -hmm. fences? Mm -hmm. um, people's clothing was getting caught on that and you could see people get hit trying to climb over the fence, getting stuck. And we just tried to keep boosting as many people over as we could. We didn't know how many people there were, if there was one shooter, multiple, if they're on the ground, where it was coming from. In that moment, you have absolutely no idea and you just run as fast as you can away from any sound of gunfire. And once we got over the fence, um, is Take all the time you need. I can't imagine how difficult this must be to think back on it. Done it. <laughs> Dozens of times, still sneaks up on you. Um, never leaves you, it feels like yesterday. Um, I looked back at my friend and uh, Jason, uh, he told me he was going back for his other friends. And you know, I thought that was the last time I might see him. Um, at that point, I knew I needed to do something to help others because um, I also knew this was an active shooting zone and ambulances can't come until it's over and there are hundreds and hundreds of people who are shot. And so being to many festivals, I also know that there's work trucks and people often share keys. So I just sprinted towards the closest uh, work truck area and the first one I checked actually had keys in the little cup holder. And um, at that point, um, the girl I was with, Jennifer, 
I looked at her and said, we're going in, and it's going to be dangerous. If you want to keep going, like, get out. And she said, absolutely not. So you guys stole that truck. And stole yeah. is a big word, but it wasn't yours. You're like, hey, I got to get back in there. So yeah. at that point, you're just getting people out just as fast I, as you could? And in the moment of all the chaos, I did laugh a little bit and said, I hope I get out of jail card for free on this yeah. one. And uh, we drove right back into the gunfire. Um, people were making makeshift trauma areas and applying tourniquets, using their belts, shoelaces, clothing, anything they could to try to help others. And we just started piling bodies into the bed of the truck in the back. And we weren't looking at, you know, if political, race, religion, anything. In those times when people are in need, you just help others. And if there could be anything beautiful in all of the strategy, it was in that moment where I saw everyone just helping each other. And we loaded up as many as we could, and it was as fast as we could to get to the hospital. I had Jen start looking up the closest hospital, and we tried to get there you know, without wrecking, of course, but we were going pretty fast. And we came screeching into the hospital. Um, I took out a palm and sorry, Sunset Hospital. Um, we just started dumping bodies into the hospital. No one had any idea this was going on. All the nurses started running around, and um, I'll never forget how much blood was in the lobby when we first dropped off the first round of victims. Uh, very shortly after, many other trucks started pulling up, doing the same thing, and dumping more bodies into, um, into the lobby. And there was multiple hospitals that people were taking dozens and dozens of people to. All in all, over, I think, 857 people were shot. Wow. And, you know, I think the toll is up to 60 people have succumbed mm -hmm. to their wounds, 58 that night, two after, you know, critical condition, and then didn't make it. Uh, What's amazing when you think about that number, though, of course, the 60 that were lost, those lives are lost, and they'll never get them back. But the fact that that many people were shot and that many people survived is not only a testament to the grace of God, but to those of you who acted quickly, who were selfless enough to go back in. Because in that situation, with that loss of blood and in that kind of gunfire, the yeah. fact that that many people were able to survive this event is truly incredible. Yeah. And um, I'll never forget looking at Jen and being like, um, we got to go back. And I tried recruiting another military guy that was assisting, and uh, she told me, absolutely not. She was going with me. And, you know, testament to her is she was plugging up gun wounds and helping keep people awake the whole time, slapping them in the face and trying to get them to the hospital. Um, so we both went back. We didn't know what we were getting into. We didn't, you, you have no idea what's going on at this time. You have no idea it's one one shooter or if there's many people on the ground or if it's a war breaking out, you have no idea what's mm -hmm. going on. And so, you know, I told her it's gonna be dangerous and we don't know what's gonna happen. And so we drove back and uh, put others before ourselves and we- At this point, what was the police response like? And how much time had gone by? Because when we're watching all this on the news, mm -hmm. trying to piece it all together, there was a lot of chaos and confusion. And it wasn't the kind of response you would have thought when you had that many people dead, that many people shot. The fact that you were able to keep going back and it still wasn't secure. What was the, the time frame that this all happened in? So I would say the trip to the hospital was about 10 to 12 minutes and to get back about the same. By the time we got back, there was a perimeter set up. We, were, we had seen a cop car that was just going very fast, had his lights on, and we got right behind him and tailed him. 
and we came screeching up to the barrier and said we're going in for more and uh, they let us so they saw the blood all over the side of the truck and knew that the ambulances couldn't get in yet and so they let us in and wow. we uh, got another dozen or so people and went back to the hospital and the shooting had stopped at this point by the time we had gotten back uh, we didn't hear any shooting we had seen more and more bodies being piled up um, you know many lifeless and then everyone doing everything they can to help others which is truly incredible and we talk a lot in nashville about the country music fan and the country music community but i think that night even looking back five years later it becomes very obvious the country music fan a lot of marine veterans like yourself a lot of law enforcement a lot of good people who not only have training and skills but a lot of selflessness and a lot of love for others not to say other fans don't but there's something about a country music fan and a country music crowd that i think brings those people together i do think you know to that point is not saying country folks are better than everyone else but i guarantee if it was another festival of some music genre you would not have had that concentration of that many people with those many skill sets right. who are capable of helping someone else and willing to do so. Capable and willing is a big part of this. Yeah. And then, you know, after that, the news got a little sketchy and a little shady. I think we watched the security guard, the story changing numerous times. Yeah. The, they, of course, they said it was Stephen Paddock. They, you know, placed it on a man who in his mid-50s, didn't really have any family, didn't really have any friends, somebody that was just kind of an unknown, had a, a background that maybe he was familiar with what he did and, and somehow trained in mass killing of some sort. But we didn't get a lot of information other yeah. than that. And then, you know, what struck me as very odd is that ISIS took credit for this. And looking back at all the acts of terror and domestic disturbances that we've had in our country, ISIS hadn't taken credit for things that ISIS didn't complete. So that was weird to me. Then, like yourself, like a military background, talking to friends in the special ops community that were listening to the footage and, and the B-roll of it all are saying, listen, this doesn't just sound like what a bump stock. This sound like a, like a belt-fed machine gun. What was your perception of what you heard and the rationale behind it all? the investigation, are you happy with what you've been told? Well, I will lead off with this. Um, after everything happened, I sat down with friends and I understood you know, what we had done and accomplished by commandeering a vehicle and saving as many people as possible. It was a very big and, and very positive story in the light of tragedy. And we had immediately tons and tons of calls coming in from news stations trying to get us on and we had to have a meeting like you know do we talk about what we did um, or do we just go mourn with everyone and we decided that this was an opportunity to put positive light out into the world in a time of darkness and uh, we started accepting everything but only to the degree of not making it political and a time for healing for the community mm -hmm. and that was very like um, just written in stone before we went into any interview with anyone, any news station, they immediately asked about bump stocks and all you know these other questions mm -hmm. of what's going on in the investigation, how do you guys feel? Um, but we kept it to this is a time for mourning and time for those families. Um, five years later, it's a little different story. We still don't have answers. It's been swept under the rug. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, if it was some other tragedy that had fit an agenda of some kind for politicians to use for maybe gun control or, or, or not, or in that degree, we would see it every year. And this would have been a big thing blasted across the news, but silence again, year after year. And we don't know why. Um, I have my thoughts. I don't feel like what we were given was all the information. Um, in that moment, I can't tell you if it was um, different types of guns. Looking back on the footage and hearing, I, I think it was a different type of gun that was used contrary to what the FBI and official statement released. Um, we have, you know, I'm skeptical of one man being able to bounce between windows that agile, that quick, mm -hmm. operating those firearms that well. Um, there's lots of things that happened. I'll give you two quick ones. You know, the judicial system requested the coroner office give a report. They ended up um, cremating the body before they did, and they um, didn't listen to the court and kept missing deadlines and pushing it back into. You talked about Stephen Paddock's yeah. body. Yep. Right. So they kept requesting, you know, the autopsy and everything, and they kept declining and um, breaking the judicial rule at the time. And then they ended up cremating the body ahead of time without any approval. Um, that was one big thing. Another thing was their um, shots on the tanks at the airport from, from very concise trying to blow up to create some kind of distraction. So just, you know, putting all these pieces together, I don't feel we were given the full truth and scope. Um, we may never know. And at the end of the day, um, what gives me rest is that I don't think a concert was targeted to just kill as many people as possible. And I feel like it was a byproduct of something else. And, mm -hmm. um, and just simply, this isn't something that people are going out of their way to try to do, so. It's very weird that nobody wanted to talk about it. I went to school in Las Vegas. I have a lot of acquaintances and even friends on Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. They are not satisfied. They feel like they've been told to shut up. Um, the FBI investigation into all of it. I mean, immediately you're labeled a conspiracy theorist, but when you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together, something is still not adding up here. And as somebody who lived in Vegas for many, many years, it boggles my mind that Stephen Paddock could get into Mandalay Bay, get up that high and transport weapons, and nobody would have captured that? In that the, that wouldn't have been a security concern? These casinos have eyes in the sky everywhere. You don't move without the security cameras seeing you. They can pretty much read the credit card in your pocket. Right. So it's very mind-boggling on how someone could pull this off. You know, we saw the official after story that was put out by New York Times. Somehow they got a hold of all the footage ahead of time, and then you can see timestamps changing across this whole footage and then that was like the official report and then just disappeared and not to be questioned ever again. It's very odd the way nobody wants to talk about it and it seems weird to me looking at all of it too and talking to people like yourself that it could have been one gunman and we didn't know much about him and then all of a sudden it just all went away. Yeah. Um, then the girl, the girlfriend, I believe, was in the Philippines, was told to leave. The girlfriend is Stephen Paddock at the time. Yeah, all never just... heard any follow-up story after that or any testimony from her. So, um, they tried to then connect something with his brother, who is dabbling in, I think, some form of pedophilia of online stuff to like try to disgrace that person, too. It was all very wishy-washy and gray area. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing for me is... You know, being a veteran and going through 
a tragedy to that caliber. Um, just understanding still how important our Second Amendment is and being able to advocate from this, this kind of stance and having this kind of trauma under my belt has made me very passionate about still supporting our Second Amendment. Which is interesting that you say that too because I think from the outside looking in, a lot of the other media outlets would probably say, you've been through this horrible tragedy, don't you want gun control now? To which you say, no, absolutely not. I support our Second Amendment rights. Why is that? Why going through a tragedy where you've seen so many people die next to you because of a firearm, why are you still so convicted in your beliefs of the Second Amendment and your right to protect and defend yourself? Well, it's taken me years to kind of figure out the meaning of all that. You know, people will be quick to be like, well, if you had a gun in that situation, it wouldn't have helped you. And you're 100% right. It wouldn't. That was an extremely unique and terrible situation to be in. You don't stand a chance being in a crowd of 22,000 with bullets raining down above you to do anything. You're not going to be able to do anything. That's up to another good person with a gun, a police officer, you know, to help de-escalate that situation, which they did eventually. And great job by the police and the response time to such a unique scenario. Mm -hmm. um, they all, you know, did a great job to the best they could. Um, but it's much bigger than that. When you start looking into the big, big picture of things and look across history and centuries and millennia of things happening over time and governments confiscating weapons of any kind, it doesn't have to be firearms necessarily. You have the great sword hunt of, I think, Japan, where they took all the swords from all the farmers and stuff so they couldn't rebel against the government when they told them that they're gonna kill them unless they keep making food. And so that's one instance in history. And our founding fathers and all these amazing, brilliant minds came together and they had these arguments we're having today, the Federalists, Anti-Federalists, and they discussed with an enlightened public what we should do with this new country to maintain freedom. And the Second Amendment being the most important of all, even though they put it second, a well-regulated militia necessary to the state of a free people, uh, necessary to, to the being of a free state, um, to keep the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And I always look back, always pe people are saying, shall not be infringed is the most important. The most important is necessary to the security of a free state. Mm -hmm. You can't have freedom without the ability to push back oppression. And it's a much bigger picture when you look at, you know, say the Holocaust or something where people had no ability to even fight back. Um, we pray and hope it never comes to that. Um, anyone who supports the Second Amendment never wants that. We just want to defend our family, our friends, our country. And that's kind of you know what it means to my core. When you did that yeah. in the military, and you did that five years ago in Las Vegas, Nevada, we thank you for sharing the story. I know that even five years later, it has to be just as difficult reliving all of this. But what you did, as you know, saved so many lives. It gives so many people hope. And just looking at the decency of humans, I think the biggest takeaway from all of this, beyond the conspiracy theories and beyond the media and beyond the inconsistencies, is People were there for each other, and it didn't matter who you were, didn't matter where you were from, who you voted for, the color of your skin, the pronouns you prefer, you were a human being on that night, yeah. and people like you stepped in to save other human beings, and people came together. So we thank you so much for sharing the story, and you're welcome anytime thank to you, discuss Tommy. that and many other things. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And God bless you for everything thank that you. you've done. All right, still ahead, Nancy Pelosi told us what she really thinks illegal immigrants are good for, and hint, hint, it's not the standard definition of the American dream. My final thoughts are next.
While our illustrious president is known for reading the teleprompter cues out loud, House Speaker and Democrat denmother Nancy Pelosi said the quiet part out loud and gave us a really interesting take on the American dream. It's time for final thoughts. Ever since Texas Governor Abbott and now Florida Governor Ron DeSantis started busing, flying, and shipping illegal immigrants out of their non-sanctuary states and into the deep blue havens like New York City, D.C., Chicago, and Martha's Vineyard, the loving and tolerant leaders of those cities have been in a real tizzy. Apparently, the gift of illegal immigrants wasn't the early Christmas present they were hoping for. Weird. But not to be outdone, Speaker Pelosi has stepped up to the plate to tell us why those illegal immigrants should remain in the South and border states. Now, if you squint with one eye and close the other, you'd swear you were listening to a Confederate general circa 1861. We have a shortage of workers in our country, and you see even in Florida, some of the farmers and the growers saying, why are you shipping these uh, Immigrants up north, we need them to pick the crops down here. Yes, Nancy just told us the illegals need to stay in the south and in border states because if not, who will pick the crops and do the menial labor? Now, if that sounds racist to you, it's because it damn sure is. And if that doesn't sound like the definition of the American dream, it's because it damn sure isn't, at least not for us folks on the side of public decency. But boy, some of y'all thought it was so egregious when Trump said Mexico isn't sending its best. Hmm. But you see, Nancy said the quiet part out loud and proved a theory I've been voicing for over a year now. The Democrats have opened our border. It's a free-for-all, and we know it, and the rest of the world knows it, too. But not only do the Democrats, oh, and the special interest rhinos, want the cheap labor— they want the votes, and they will legitimize our open border and the now millions of people they've let in just this year by saying we have a worker shortage, so why not? Well, I'll tell you why not, because America's full enough. And furthermore, coming in via the open border and then living in the shadows, working for less, picking crops, cleaning homes, and jumping from menial labor job to menial labor job is not the American dream. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with those jobs, but to relegate these people to those jobs and tasks because they are illegal and because they're in the shadows is wrong. But if you come in illegally, that's what you get. Yeah, those are the kind of jobs you're relegated to as an illegal. But as an immigrant who respects our country enough to come in the right and legal way, the United States of America is your oyster. But that's not what the Democrats want for you. They want you in the shadows. They want you dependent on them. They want you to be poor, low information, ballot box stuffers, and that's it. Don't believe me? We'll take it right from Nancy's mouth. Those are my final thoughts. Don't forget to check out the entire show as well as exclusive content, of course, on Outkick.com. From Nashville, God bless and take care.